Hey, we're going to jump into season two of Binge the Bible today. Here's, the, here's what we've been doing to catch you up. Uh, we're doing Binge the Bible, and Binge the Bible is we're going through a, basically a book of the Bible a week, and we're doing it in seasons, and the reason is is because it's digestible. It's way more digestible that way. And Think of it like your favorite TV show on Netflix, right? You watch a season, you binge it, and then you take a few weeks, months, in some cases it's a year, off, and then when it comes out with a whole new season, you binge it, you watch it, and then you wait for the next season. Same concept here, so that we can digest it. But here's the reality of our Bench the Bible series. I am not doing this so that I can fill our head with information. That part doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that it is, it is hard to love a God that we know nothing about. And the truth is, is whether you uh, read the Bible currently uh, or not, the truth is this is God's word. If you want to know God, read his word. You want to know his heart, read his word. If you want to know his character, read his word. If you want to know his intentions, read his word. Everything we go through in life, it can be found in his word. He gives us direction, he gives us guidance, he gives us leadership in every bit of that in his word. And I find it real hard. To believe that people love God yet never read his word. And so my hope and my heart is to get us to a place to where we know his word, we understand his word, and now each week is not to supplement his word. So you need to go back and read it because we, we go over like the overarching idea of it all. I give you the understanding and the history and the culture and the context, but when you go back and read it, and you know all that, man, it changes everything. And so we do a book of the Bible a week, except this week, where we're doing Numbers and Deuteronomy this week. So you're going to want to take notes, but there's a reason. Deuteronomy, we, you can run through and understand real fast. So we're going to hit that at the end of today, because it brings Numbers to even more understanding. Here's what we need to know before we jump into it is this. Watch. The Bible was not written to you. It wasn't written to you, but it was written what? For you. It was written for you. Here, it's the same thing as this, right? If I write my wife a letter, and you grab that letter, right? It's, you can't read it with the same sentiment that I wrote it. Why? I didn't write it to you. I wrote it to my wife, my, the love of my life, right? But there may be things in there that you read and you're like, oh, that challenges me. That makes me better. That helps me. I understand that. What it, there's things in it for you, but it wasn't to you. It's the same thing with the Bible. And if you don't understand that, then we will cherry pick scriptures to fit our lifestyle instead of getting our lifestyle to fit the scriptures. And so we got to understand that some of these scriptures, and I'm just going to be honest, that I hear people quote all the time in order to villainize other people, other genders, other places in life. Can I just be real? They are taken so far out of context. And the reason is, is because we don't understand the culture, the context, or, or the history of what's being said and who it's being said to and why it's being said. Wouldn't that help a lot? Wouldn't that help a lot? It helped me a lot, and it does help me a lot. So we're going to go through that as we jump into the book of Numbers today. Now, when we left off season one, recap, we were in the book of Leviticus, right? Exodus was the Israelites were in slavery to the Egyptians. God brings them out. That's what's called an exodus. Brings them out through all the plagues and all this other stuff. Brings them out into the wilderness. Moses is leading the first Pentecostal church of Israel is what I like to affectionately call it. Or the Israelites leads them out. Leviticus comes along, and, and a lot of people, as we were getting up to Leviticus, were like, Pastor, I can't wait for Leviticus. I really need you to break down Leviticus. Leviticus makes no sense. It's a lot of rules and regulations and laws, and it doesn't have anything to do with me. And i got to sacrifice a cow to do this and a rabbit to do that, and it just doesn't make sense. And then we looked at Leviticus, and we understood, here's the basis, living for God looks like something. It just looks like something. There's something to do. In the whole book of Leviticus, it begins with Moses outside of the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? It was the place that God had constructed so that a holy God could what? Dwell with who? Unholy people. And so he, this place is constructed so that a holy God could dwell with unholy people. And what happens? Watch this. God, Moses, the leader of the first Pentecostal church of Israel, all of a sudden can't go in. Why? Why? too unholy. So how do we fix it? Laws, 
regulations. Something, sin costs something. Something has to pay for sin. Now, we know that we live in the era to where Jesus paid for our sin. They weren't there. So something had to. So there was sacrifices and all this stuff that had to take place. So it started there. And then you go through the book of Leviticus and you learn about all this stuff and what happens. And I'm here to tell you, just to back up, I'm here to tell you, it worked. It worked. It all worked. How do I know that? Because it's going to take us right back to where we pick up the day. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. Where? In the tent of meeting. He started outside the tent. He implemented what God said in Leviticus, and now he's where? In the tent. Why? God wants to dwell with unholy people. I need you to hear me when I say that. God wants to be with you. God will do everything to be with you. And here's the beauty, right? In Exodus and Leviticus, they build the temple so that God can dwell with them. And then in uh, the Gospels or in the New Testament, when Jesus comes along, it goes, the, t- the tabernacle goes from a place to a person, and his name is Jesus. And now God is dwelling with Jesus, and Jesus is walking among us. And so where Jesus is, the presence of God is, and God is dwelling. And then it goes from the place to a person to a people, which is us. Because when Jesus was crucified on the cross and the veil was torn in half, it, we become the tabernacle that God's spirit is filling Because he wants, and a holy God wants to dwell with unholy people. And I don't know about you, but man, that is an honor for me. Because I don't get it right a lot. Maybe y'all do. Maybe y'all are holier than me. Right? Y'all are acting a little bit holier than me today. But maybe you're holier than me. Maybe you got it more together than me. But man, a holy God, a perfect God, a loving God, wants to dwell in and with me? Oh man, that's something. And that's powerful. Because he will do whatever it takes to get there. So we're going to pick up right here today in the fourth book of the Pentateuch or the Torah. um, In in the book of Numbers. Now, every book we go through who wrote it, when did they write it, why did they write it, who did they write it to. But before we talk about who wrote it, we got to understand this scripture that we talk about every single week. Because this is the basis of the Bible and what we have to know. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Watch this. Man wrote the Bible, but God inspired the man. Everything in the Bible was not there because Moses or whoever decided they wanted it there. It was because the Holy Spirit spoke it. It was inspired. All scripture. That means every scripture that you don't want to listen to. Come on, y'all. Every scripture you agree with. Every scripture you don't agree with. Every scripture that's hard to read. Every scripture that's easy to memorize. Right? All scripture is inspired by God, which means it is supposed to be there. And it will always do one of these things. It will be profitable, which means it brings a bottom line increase to your life for teaching for reproof or correcting your life, for going, hey, being kind of a sorry husband right now. And that's why those scriptures start popping up in your life. Or you're being kind of a sorry friend or a leader or what. That's why those things. For training in righteousness. In other words, teaching us how to live in right relationship with God. Scripture will do that. Why? Because it's all inspired by God, and a holy God wants to dwell with unholy people, and so he's trying to teach us and help us get to that place. So Numbers, who wrote it? Moses. He's becoming quite the author at this point. Every book of the Bible that we've been through to this place in time in the Binge the Bible series has been written by Moses. I hope he's getting a good residual check by these things. uh, uh, Moses wrote the book of Numbers. Who was written to the same people that Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus was written to Israel, the next generation. Why? To teach the blessings of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. That's going to be the overarching theme of the entire book. Now, here's the deal I know that this topic today, this purpose today, is taboo because we're supposed to be able to do, say, and think whatever we want with no consequence whatsoever. And that's how we live today. I can say what I want. I can do what I want. I can treat you how I want. You can't do anything about it. That is fairy tale. 
That is not real life. That is living a video game in real life today. And the truth is you can't say, do or think whatever you want. Well, you can think whatever you want. Just some of it needs to stay here. But you can't treat people however you want without consequence. There's going to be a consequence. And some of them are good blessings, and some of them are bad consequences, right? If I run full on with all that I have, head first into a brick wall, one of two things is going to happen. I'm either going to have a busted head or the wall is going to be busted. Depends on how hard you think my head is. But the truth is there's consequences for that. And I can't look at that wall and go, you can't do that to me. It's just life. Are you with me? And what they're saying is, and actually the teaching and the ideology of the fact that there is no consequence for anything that we do is contrary to the kingdom. It's contrary to the kingdom and the way of God. There are blessings for obedience and consequences for disobedience. It was written in around 1446 to 1406 B.C. So you can kind of start lining this stuff up as you're taking your notes. Now, here's the book of Numbers. I'm going to give it to you in one sentence, but then we're going to break it into four sections. It's really this idea of how you take a 12 to 14 day journey uh, to a promised land and turn it into a 40 year detour. That's really what the book of Numbers is all about. We're going to look at what that looks like. So here's the four sections. Number one, Israel is counted. And there's reasons you need to know all this stuff. There's people still today, you know, we celebrate the fact that this summer we had more people walk through the doors of Radiate Church in the summer of 2023 than we have in the history of 12 and a half years of this church. Come on, somebody. I celebrate that. I'll celebrate numbers until the day I die because every number is a soul and every soul is going somewhere. Come on. And I believe you should celebrate that. For the people that don't believe you should celebrate that, there's literally a book called Numbers. Yeah, but we shouldn't count people. Well, the first thing that they did in the book of Numbers is what? They counted people. They counted people. They literally took a census. In fact, it, it says it like this. Uh, numbers 1, 2 through 3. Take a... Census, or count all the congregation of the sons of Israel by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of the names, every male, head by heads. First thing they did. First thing they did. Very simple. From 20 years old and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. Here's what they were doing. What is the importance of knowing how many people are in your army? What is the importance of knowing that? You have to know how many people are in your army to know how strong your army is. Because the stronger your army, the, the better you fight, the different ways you fight. If you're a smaller, weaker army, you have to do more, more finesse and more tactics and spread things out. But if you've got a lot of people and you've got a strong army, you can go in and you can strong arm everything. They had to know how to fight when they came up against Things. Here's what they did. They literally counted the people that were able to serve, that were called to serve. Watch this. And he puts them in their armies. What does that mean? In the place that they are best, uh, best suited to serve. Can I tell you what this is? The way the modern church works today is literally Numbers chapter 1. Count the people, help them discover their talents, put them in sections or on teams or in armies that they are best suited to serve. Because if you ain't suited and you're not good at greeting people and you can't smile when they pull in the parking lot, I probably need you somewhere other than there. Praise the Lord. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm in Israel and this man can't hold up a sword, I don't need him carrying a sword. Are you with me? They needed to know who was, who was talented enough to carry a shield, who was talented enough to hold a sword. They needed to know who was a good cook that could feed the armies, who could take care, who were the medics, who were the call-outs, who were the ones that played the trumpets for the call of war or the end of war. You see, who were the generals, who were the leaders. Why? Because you got to know what you're fighting with. And you got to know who you're fighting with. And can I just tell you something? Some of us have got to understand that if I want to take ground with this army, man, I got to be a part of the army that I'm supposed to be in. I got to be a part of it. I got to carry a shield if I got to carry a shield. I got to swing a sword if I got to swing a sword. I got to do what I got to do to take ground because I'm called to be a part of this army. And that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm a part of. And that's what I love about this. And as they counted, they realized 
that the men that were able to fight as they broke them up was about 603,550 people. That's a big army. I know when you read and you hear about, like I, if you're anything like me, and you hear about the wilderness and you hear about the Israelites in the wilderness and all this stuff taking place, I didn't think it was that many people for a long, long, long time. It was kind of like, hey, me and the couple hundred people that I worked with when I worked uh, you know, at other places, or maybe it was me and the barista at Starbucks and, and you know, whoever, and we were just kind of out. In the, my, I had a small picture in mind. But just the people that were in the armies was 603,550. Now, if you count all the people under 20 years old, because you've got to look at the parameters, under 20 years old, and then you count the women... And you count the Levites who were not included in that because the Levites, their whole job was to what? If you go back to Leviticus and Exodus, their entire job was taking care of the temple. That was their entire job. They were the priests. So you count the Levites, you count the women, you count the people under 20, you got over two and a half million people wandering around in a wilderness. Now you understand. Now it begins to make sense why Moses had to be dependent on God's word and what God said and nothing else. Now you know why it took a special man to lead these people out of the wilderness. And here's what I love about this first section is this. Sometimes we have to step back from our situation and count everything God has done for us so that we understand what's on our side. Often we'll get through a circumstance and we will not take a census of everything God's brought us through. And so now we enter the next miracle and the next moment and the next season in entitlement. God, you should. No, 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 no. God doesn't have to do anything. God gets to do everything. And he can do what he chooses to do. But when I don't take that census, then I'll walk into it expecting God to do what I want him to do, not what he wants to do. And I'll forget everything he's already done for me in life. I'll forget that he's already pulled me out of the pits of hell. I'll forget that he's already saved my marriage. I'll forget that he's already pulled me from the way that I used to be. I'll forget that he cleaned up my mouth. I'll forget that he cleaned up the fact that I was a man of no integrity. I'll forget all of those things. Why? Because I haven't taken my senses. It's important to count who's on your side. Can I? Let me just preach for another minute and then I'm going to zoom through the rest, okay? In Isaiah, there's a vision. And there's a vision after King Uzziah dies. And when the vision happens, uh, it says that they saw the Lord sitting in the temple. And it says his train, the train of his road. If you don't know what that is, think of a wedding gown. And the the flow, the train that comes off from the back, that's the train of his robe. The train of a king's robe, the train of God's robe filled the entire temple. Why does that matter? This is where culture comes in. Because in that culture, in that history, in that time, every time a king defeated another army, he cut off a piece of the train of the robe of the defeated king's uh, robe, and he attached it to his. So the more victories he won, the bigger the train of his robe was. I don't know if you're grabbing this or not. But when the train of his robe fills the temple, what he's saying is that man's got so many victories that you don't even know about that the entire train fills an entire temple of a place where he wants to dwell with you. You don't have to fight a victory that he's already won. I don't know if you get it or not, but he's already won. You get to walk in his victory. And when you take the census and you know who's on your side, you fight different. Some of us go to fights... Like we're already defeated. I can't go to a fight that's already defeated whenever I serve a God that's already won. When I serve a God that's already won. When my life has been replaced with his life and the train of his robe fills the temple. Section one, Israel is counted. Section two, Israel packs up their U-Haul and moves. Israel's going somewhere else. So... Up to this point, what has happened is they've started up here in Egypt. They've made their trek across the Jordan or the Red Sea. They come down this way, and they're hanging out right now where we're picking up the story in Mount Sinai. This is where they are. They're in Mount Sinai. Now, looking at this, you may go, wait a second. Jericho's up here. So why in the world did they go the long way? You ever, you ever done that, taking a long way and then get there and be like, there's a much shorter way to get there, right? 
Like, they could have just walked straight across, right, and went to Jericho up here. Well, if you go to Exodus 13, it tells you why they couldn't do that. And it says, because if you cross the land of the Philistines, they would get so terrified, they would turn and go back to Egypt. So I have to take you down here because they are not ready to walk through the adversity of the Philistines. Some of you are sitting back today and you're wondering why God's got you on the long path. Why didn't you promote me faster? Why didn't this happen faster? Why haven't I gotten my miracle faster? And the reality is because if you walked into that and you saw the enemy that was staring you down at the place of your promotion, you'd turn around and run back to the person that you were. You couldn't handle it. You couldn't take it. Sometimes we need to thank God for the long route. Sometimes we need to thank God for the long path. Sometimes we need to thank God for taking us down in the trench before we go up to the, uh, up to the hilltop. The reality is sometimes we need to understand that maybe I'm not as ready as I think I am. And if I really trust God, then i got to let God take me where God wants me to go. And so they're, they're sitting here, and they're in Mount Sinai. They're hanging out right there, and, 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 and they've been there about a year, and it's time to begin moving. And really, as we get into this and we look at the scripture in just a moment, it's really kind of a glimpse into what it looks like to follow God. It's kind of a glimpse of when God says stay, what do we do? We stay. When God says go, we go. Why? Because it's not about me anymore. It's about him. And when I've submitted my life to him, I'm not chasing selfish ambition anymore. I'm chasing godly ambition. I'm chasing godly vision. I'm doing what God has asked me to do. Let's look at Numbers chapter 10, 11 through 13. It says it like this. Now, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. Now, why is that underlined? Why does that matter? you got to go back. And you got to remember, what is the cloud representative of? The presence of God. When the cloud moves... That is indicative of it's time to what? Move. Why? We go with God. When the cloud stays, what are we supposed to do? Stay. Why? We go with God. Here's the second part. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. I love this. I love this. They're following the presence of God, and it's getting, um, it's getting ratified, if you will, through the voice of his leader. Here's what I'm telling you. They're following God. They're going, hey, the cloud's moving. Moses, does that mean what I think it means? Like, mo- mo- we've been here a year. We've been here a year. Moses, does that mean we're supposed to move? Or are we supposed to stay? What do we do? Do we wait? What are we waiting on? Moses is like, nah, we're supposed to go. You need people in your life that will speak and ratify what God's saying to you. You need people in your life that you don't just go on a whim because here's what we'll do sometimes. Sometimes our emotions will make us think it's God and it actually goes against the Bible and you need somebody to look at you and go, that ain't biblical, bro. Like, stop trying to do that. What you're doing is the taco you ate last night. It ain't got nothing to do with the Holy Spirit telling you something. I'm just saying, right? Like, the truth is, is we need people in our life to look at us and go, I, I don't know. I ain't sure. Like, I can't tell you what to do, but I'm telling you, don't do that. You know what I'm saying? Like, we need, we need that. And they, and, and, and they got to a place where they looked at Moses. And Moses goes, see, listen, I know your kids were born here. I know you've had this job for the past 10 years. I know whatever speaks to your life. Moses is going, hey, listen, I, I get it. You're comfortable. It's time to move. Well, Moses, what's better on the other side? I don't know what's better on the other side, but I know God's moving, and where God's moving, I'm going. And if we're going to follow God, and we're the nation of, we're the children of God, and we're the nation of God, then the truth is when God moves, we go, and when God stays, we stay. Yeah, but Moses, I don't want to go. Didn't ask you that. I'm just telling you when the presence goes, we go. And if you want to follow God, we've got to go. Yeah, but my kids are in this. I'm telling you, you see what I'm saying, right? You need some, some, somebody to, to talk you into doing what you know you should do. Because you'll talk yourself out of doing what you know you should. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, you'll push post on that post. And you know you shouldn't push post on that post. And you need somebody that'll erase it for you. You need somebody that'll come back and be like, bro, what are you doing? Stop. Like, girl, you shouldn't have been doing all that, right? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Numbers chapter 10. Let's read the next section. 33 through 34. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord. 
which was Sinai, three days journey, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for three days. Watch this. Now, this is important, okay? The cloud was indicative of the presence of God, and so was the Ark. Why is it important that the Ark was going first? I can't get ahead of God. You can't move ahead of God. If I'm going to live with God, he goes first. I follow him. He doesn't follow me. Your timeline does not dictate his. His, dic- his, his timeline dictates ours. We got to understand who's first and who's next. I may be next, but he's first. So his presence goes first. His presence has to bless the next season. His presence has to, has to clean the path. I don't have to know the path. I don't even have to know where the path is going. I just have to know that his presence goes before the path. I just got to know that like, hey, God, you're telling me to go, so I got to trust you've already been there. He goes for three days ahead of them to seek out a resting place for them. When we don't follow God, we may be walking a path that wears us out more. He's trying to find us a place to rest for a minute. And you're creating more work. Because we won't follow his presence. And the cloud of the Lord was over them day or, or by day when they set out from the camp. I, I love this. So you see all this, right? Put yourself in the two and a half million people of the Israelites, the first Pentecostal church of Israel with Pastor Moses and Aaron leading the way. Hey, hey Ron, all this stuff's going on. You would surely have no complaints, right? God is providing. God is taking you out of Egyptian slavery. He's got a cloud leading you by day. You've been hanging out at Sinai for a while, and now you're starting your journey to the promised land. It's going to take maybe two weeks, if that. We are good. We're fast walkers. We're okay. God's taking care of us this long. We'll be fine. You would never complain about that, would you? Let me put it like this. God's redeemed your marriage, given you the kids you prayed for, given you influence in the next generation. God's given you a job that helps you pay the bills. God's given you everything in your life. You would surely. God's given you a great church to belong to and life groups to be a part of and a church to serve and a community to love and a husband and a wife and die and die. You fill in your life. Surely you'd never complain, right? You got no complaints. The Israelites would never complain. Surely they wouldn't do that. Now the people became like those who what? Complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. God never gets mad. God could never get mad at me. Listen, when we don't take a census of everything and understand everything God's brought us from, we'll be ungrateful for everything he's taken us to. They didn't understand the blessing they were living, man. God was with them. He was blessing them. He was taking them to the land of the promise. And they're like, I just wish I could have a steak. (laughs) God, I I know you've given me enough money to take care of my family, but how dare you ask me to give anything else? I need more. Give me more. I need this. I, I know you gave me the wife I prayed for, but she ain't exactly acting like it now. Y'all play like y'all hadn't thought something. Flip it to husband if you want. I don't care. Right? God, I just want to make a difference in this world. All right, go serve your church. No, not like that. Let's be for real. This is real life stuff. God, I need you to help me pay my bills. Well, here's a great job. I didn't want to do anything for it. Just take away the bills. And God's sitting here listening to the complaining after seeing all the blessing, and he gets mad. Now, if y'all don't know what that is like, and y'all think God is wrong for that, I don't know what to tell you because you've never been around kids. Because I love my kids, but I got mad at all three of them yesterday. Give me till the end tonight. I'll probably get mad at them at least once today. But I love them. Doesn't mean God doesn't love them. In fact, I think frustration is an, is, is, is an expression of love. Because it's passion. 
It's passion. It's like, you know why I get mad at my kids sometimes? Because I'm trying to tell them the right way to go. And God forbid they think that their 40-year-old father knows anything better than they do. Yeah, come on. Praise the Lord. You're talking real life. And then I get frustrated because I'm like, I'm, I'm about to save you heartache. Nah, man. Nah, bruh. We, you know. And I get mad. His anger was kindled. Why? He's trying to save them. He's trying to help them. He's like, no, they're like, no, nah, bro, that ain't enough. He, <laughs> hopefully they didn't say that. I wish that word would disappear, by the way. His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Can you imagine? You're walking with the cloud, complaining, and all of a sudden, I fell into a burning ring of fire. The outskirts start burning, man. I'd be like, God, my bad. I was just kidding, man. You do you, do you boo-boo. We good. <laughs> like, Great day. This is, this is the truth of Scripture. And then the people cried out to my, Moses, help. I'd have looked at him and been like, you get what you asked for. Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place is called Tibera because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Sometimes, when we're ungrateful, God turns us over to what we're ungrateful for. God, how dare you leave me in this wilderness? How dare you take me to long ground? How dare you leave me out here? How, how dare you make me depend on you? Okay, fine. I'll let you depend on you, but don't cry to me when it gets hard. And it will get hard. And it will get tough. It will get difficult. Here's how I sum up section two. Be careful what you ask for. You may just get it. Be careful what you ask for. You may just get it. And that's for all of us. And then we go to section number three. So Israel's counted. Israel moves. Now, a shocker, Israel rebels. I've never seen this before. Just go read Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and you'll see this over and over. Watch this. If you don't learn from history, you are bound to what? Yeah. Boom. Israel rebels. Again. And again. And again. And again, watch this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which is the promised land, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, everyone a leader among them. Send the top leaders out to spy out the land. What does he say? Which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. He's already told them, It is yours. There's somebody renting it right now, but when you show up, it's yours. He's telling them, just go see. He is nice enough to give them a glimpse of the promise that they're about to walk into. Now watch what Moses says to them, right? He says it like this. When Moses sent out, sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, go up, in, uh, go up there into the land of Negev. Then go up in the hill country, see what the land is like, and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort. Then get some of the fruit of the land. Now, the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. You want to know, how much does it produce? Is it good? Moses turned it into the judgment of the promise, not the enjoyment of it. Moses said, go judge if we can actually have what God says we can have. How many times has God told us something in Scripture, on a Sunday morning, through a sermon, in your prayer time, in your life, through a spouse, through a leader, through a mentor in your life, a spiritual father, spiritual mother. How many times has God told us something? We've gone, I don't know, let me judge that so I can see if I can actually have that. And God's gone, I didn't ask you to judge it, I asked you to enjoy it. I'm giving you a glimpse of not what I might give you if the days are right. I'm giving you a glimpse of what I will give you when you get there. Let's keep going. Thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us. Okay, good, you listened. And it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Here's the grapes. Nevertheless, 
The people who live in the land are strong. Nevertheless, nevertheless, this word right here gets me every time. It's the same word we use today in a but. Some of us have got too much but in the way. And I'm not trying to be crude, and I'm not even trying to be overly funny and cute with the word usage of that word. I'm being dead serious. Some of us, God will tell us something. We throw a but right on the end of it. But yeah, God, I know you told me, but. God, I know I'm supposed to serve, but. God, I know I'm supposed to give, but. God, I know I'm supposed to be a better husband, but. I know I'm supposed to be a better wife, but. I know but. I know but. And we got too many buts. And God's going, man, are you going to believe me? Are you not? And there's a point where you got to decide, are you going to believe the nevertheless or the but, or are you going to walk with God? It's really a choice only you can make. He says, nevertheless, the people who live in the land, they're strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And even more, that's not enough. We saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of Negev, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. He's just, you ever done that? You got started listening to negative things, and you just keep going? He's like, I ain't got money for this, and that, and this, and that. It's just like a country song that just starts up in your head. And I like country. And then Caleb quieted the people before Moses, and he said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. I like Caleb. Because Caleb goes, I know what they're saying. Forget that. But God said. But God said. Now watch what happens. But the men who had gone up with him, said, we are not able to go up against the people. They're too strong for us. They forgot to take a census of everything God had done for them. So they gave out to the sons of Israel, all two and a half million people, a bad report of the land. They poor-mouthed the promise of God. Which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone, in spying it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw, and just to add to it, we saw Nephilim, giants. The sons of Anak are a part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. Get that. And so we were in theirs. In other words, we were little to ourselves. And so surely they thought we were. Some of you are walking around acting like grasshoppers when God's called you to be a giant. And your insecurity in yourself is creating an assumption that everybody else sees you that way. And so I really think I'm hitting on something right now. And so you can't even walk in the call God's put on your life in a confident way because you're terrified nobody else sees it. Because you think you're a grasshopper. But when other people see you, they see a giant. And I want to encourage you, if you get in the presence of God, and you start following the goodness of God, and you really start believing what God said, you won't see a grasshopper. You'll stop poor-mouthing the promise God put in you. You'll stop poor-mouthing the, the, the purpose God put in you. You'll stop poor-mouthing the ability, and you'll start standing with your chest bowed out and your shoulders held back in a spiritual boldness because you know everything God's brought you from, and you know that the train of his robe fills the temple, and you know who's fighting for you, and it's nobody but God and you, and you got this thing. And you start walking with a confidence. And I'm, I just, I, I am so sick of the spirit of insecurity in people. Walking around with their head, I don't know, this is my, my season of life. This is, yeah, that, no, no, hush! If God brought you to it, he'll bring you through it. Now quit whining about it and walk with him. I'm telling you, that's for somebody. That ain't, for no, that ain't even in my notes, praise God. I love Caleb's excitement in this thing. And then I hate the fear of others. Of everybody else. Terrified. Chapter 14 goes on and they're working up two and a half million people to be terrified of what God said. Now they're going, why has God brought us here to kill us and get by the sword instead of leaving us in Egypt? We better go back to Egypt. It would be better there. Get rid of Pastor Moses. Get us somebody else who will tell us what we want to hear. Tell us what we need to know. And when you really don't believe who God says he is, you won't believe anything he says which is the importance of knowing the Bible. So it goes on, and God's like, all right, I'm tired of this. I'm going to destroy the entire nation of Israel. You're done. Over. Burn you up. Over. And Moses goes to him, no, God, please don't do that. 
forgive them. And so God forgives them, but he doesn't take away their consequence. And there's an important lesson here. There's a belief in theology that every time God forgives, he takes away consequence. That's not always the case. God can forgive the abuse of finances, but you still got bills to pay. God can forgive adultery, but you still have trust to build. God can forgive walking away from him, but you still have faith to build. Are you seeing what I'm saying? Consequences and forgiveness are not mutually exclusive. You can be forgiven and still have an earthly consequence you have to live out. Which takes us immediately into section 4 of the book of Numbers. Now I'm telling you, Deuteronomy is going to go fast, so like, just stick with me. Because now Israel's counted, they've moved, um, they've rebelled, and so now they're being punished. Israel's being punished. Um, numbers 14, 30 through 34. Surely, you, this is God, surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you. The land I promise you, you won't even get in it. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, watch it, I love this. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey. In other words, hey, they looked at God and said, my next generation, my offspring will never walk in the promise that you said. They will become prey and they will die in the wilderness. He goes, the ones that you said would never make it to the wilderness uh, or to the promised land, I will bring them into the promised land and they will know the land that you have what? Rejected. Not the land that I'm keeping you from. The land you decided not to walk into. How? Disobedience. God, I get this question all the time. How does, God send, how does a loving God send people to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. We accept or reject him. We have that ability. God doesn't send anybody anywhere. We reject or accept. But as for you, your corpses will fall into the wilderness. Your sons will be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness. Generational curses. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, get your stuff right now. Because what you struggle with and you don't take care of, your kids will. Hear me, I, I, I'm not trying to be like that guy. I'm just telling you, if you've got a pornography problem, take care of it for you so that you can help break it in them. So they don't have to deal with it. Addiction, you fill in the blank. They will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. God is punishing them. Seem harsh? Seems like a loving father that tried over and over and finally said, you get what you asked for. You don't trust me? Have it yourselves. Do what you're going to do. Have your fun. They took a 12-day, 14-day journey. And turned it into a 40-year detour. Here's an equation I want you to remember. Fear minus faith always equals failure. These two will never live together. Ever. You either have faith or you have fear. But you can't walk in both. You can walk in uncertainty and faith. But not fear and faith. If you're going to take a step of faith, you've got to take a step of faith. If you're going to trust God, you've got to trust God. If you're not, then don't. It's up to us. We choose it. We reject it or we accept it. So now we're at the end of Numbers. And what happens is we see at the end of Numbers, we see an entire generation. About 82 funerals a day is what it would have taken. We see an entire generation die off in the wilderness and never see the promise of God. So that moves us into Deuteronomy. It's going to go fast. You know this scripture, before we go into who wrote it, you know it was inspired by God. It was written by Moses, shocker. Written to Israel, the next generation, shocker. Here's why. To teach history so they don't repeat. For the lo literal love of God, do not repeat with your moms, dads, grandmas, and grandpas did. Is what's happening. It was written in 1406 B.C. Deuteronomy 
literally means copy of the law or book of remembrance. This is why this one's quick. It's a recap of everything. He's recapping the Torah. He's recapping their history. He's recapping everything that happens. And it all happens right here in the wilderness to the east of Jericho, right around in the Moab wilderness right there. This is where the book is at. He's recapping everything. And it's basically, honestly, it's just three farewell speeches of Moses. Chapters 1 through 3, the first speech is his history class, history view. He's recapping the last 40 years. Here's what's, here's what's been going on. Um, you know, like, here's how we were in slavery through the famine, and then what fed us eventually enslaved us, and then we had to get out, and God did these great things, and then we went to the wilderness, and this happened, and then we were cast to the wilderness for 40 years because for 40 days they, uh, they, they spied it, and then they had no faith, and fear minus faith equals failure, and he's teaching them all this. Why? Because what you don't learn from history, you are bound to repeat. You're bound to repeat. Then he's got the second... Uh, farewell speech, chapters 4 through 26, guidelines for life. Honestly, it's basically a review of Leviticus. The ceremonial laws, the moral laws, um, the, um, the civil laws, all those things. Chapter 5, he goes through the Ten Commandments. He's talking about all this stuff. In short, he's reminding them, living for God looks like something. There's something to it. It should not cause you to live your life the exact same it always has. Living for God should look like something. That's speech number three, uh, two. Speech number three is chapters 27 through 34. And it breaks down the difference in blessings and curses. Now, I'm going to give you this quick. And we'll start in Deuteronomy 28. We're going to read one through six. Now, it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall, be, shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. I don't know anybody in the room today that would go, I don't want all those blessings. In other words, he's going, if you obey God, everything in your life will be blessed. It's, it's, easy, it's easy, 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 algebraic equation. And then he goes to the next part, 15 through 19. He says, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe and do, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall you be in your basket, in your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. Why is that important to know? It's Old Testament, Pastor. Yep. Living for God looks like something. And all God, God never asked for perfection, but he does ask for obedience. And he goes, if you're, if you're obedient, there's blessing with obedience. And what happens is in chapter 30, God is pleading with the Israelites. Or Moses is pleading with the Israelites, please get right with God. Please get right with God with everything you have. Please obey. Verses 19 through 20, he says it like like this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessings and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Here's what he's saying, please, and this is what I would say to you, please obey God. There will be temporary blessing from things in life, but please obey God because there's eternal blessing when it comes from God. Chapter 31, Moses installs Joshua as the new leader, and then Moses goes to a place named Mount Nebo. This is important. And as he's in Mount Nebo, he's dying. He's no longer the leader. And he has a direct look just to the front right to Jericho. 
What is Jericho? Promised land. Why is that important? Moses is never able to enter the promise that God gave him. He has to die staring at the consequence of his disobedience because he didn't trust God. In fact, if you were to go today, this is what it would look like. This is a friend of mine, Pastor Dean Herman, took this picture standing on Mount Nebo. And somewhere over in here, just over the Jordan River, is Jericho. That is the site where Moses died. Going, God, there's a difference in blessing and curses. And I got it wrong a lot. And I'm begging you, help them get it right. Don't let anybody else die in their disobedience like I am. Complaining is counterproductive. It's going to get you nowhere. Disobedience always equals consequences. And obedience always equals blessings. It's our job. It's our responsibility. That is why Christianity is not a religion of rules, but it's a lifestyle of a relationship. Because I want to be obedient to the God that loves me, to the holy God that wants to dwell with unholy people. I want to pray with you. Thank you for hanging with me for a little while longer today. Because I just believe there's some things in the, in the Bible that I can skim over, but I can't. <laughs> and what I want to do is if you're in the room and you're ready to go, I just need to give my life to Jesus today. I'm going to lead a prayer. And all you got to do is in your chair, right where you are, just pray that to yourself. And submit your life to Jesus today. And say, hey, I don't want to do this without you anymore this without you. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Jesus, we give you our lives. Thank you for dying on the cross to forgive my past, forgive my present, and redeem my future. I give you all that I am, and I don't want to do this without you anymore. Thank you, God, for being a loving God that loves me even in the midst of my disobedience. But Jesus, walk with me and take me further. Thank you for dying on that cross to pay for my sin so that I can be in relationship with God forever.